1: I'm Dr. Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14 astronaut. I flew to the moon in 1971 to the Mauro area on Apollo 14 with Commander Alan Shepard, who was our commander, uh, Stuart Russa, who was our command module pilot, and I was a lunar module pilot in February fifth, nineteen 1971. And you're listening to the Dr. Sky Show.
0: Welcome again, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dr. Sky Show, heard exclusively here on TeentalkNetwork.com and on the many radio stations around the nation that hear the Dr. Sky Report. And ladies and gentlemen, a special hello to our flagship website and radio station, and that being KFNX News Talk Radio 1100, the undisputed 50,000-watt powerhouse of the Desert Southwest, with all those 50,000 watts in check. And if you're a first-time listener to the Dr. Sky Show, welcome. Our content and material concerns itself with the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, with occasional celebrity guests mixed in to the foray. And today, ladies and gentlemen, an outstanding guest. Only 12 humans have ever walked on the surface of the moon, and today, ladies and gentlemen, it is our privilege and honor to have Dr. Edgar Mitchell of Apollo 14 fame to discuss his mission, the necessity for learning about space sciences, and of course, keeping us here on planet Earth, looking toward the skies to see where the next mission may go and where it should go. But a brief introduction of Apollo 14 and our special guest. Apollo 14 was the eighth manned mission in the American Apollo program, the third to land on the moon. It was the last of the H-missions, targeted landings with two-day stays on the moon with two lunar EVAs, or moonwalks. Commander Alan Shepard, Command Module Pilot Stuart Rusa, and Lunar Module Pilot Dr. Edgar Mitchell launched on their nine-day mission on January the 31st of 1971. Shepard and Mitchell made their lunar landing on February the 5th in the Fra Moro formation. This had originally been the target of the aborted Apollo 13 mission. And during two lunar EVAs, some 93 pounds of moon rocks were collected, and several surface experiments, including seismic studies, were performed. Commander Alan Shepard famously hit two golf balls on the lunar surface with a makeshift club that he had brought from Earth. Shepard and Mitchell spent about 33 hours on the moon, with about nine and a half hours on EVA. It is a distinct privilege and honor to welcome one of the moonwalkers, American hero, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, to the Dr. Sky Show. Good afternoon, Dr. Mitchell.
1: Thank you for inviting me,
0: and I'm pleased to be with you. Well, thank you, sir. Starting off with such a wonderful story of Apollo 14, I wanted to go back in time, talking a little bit about your childhood and your fascination, I'm sure, for aviation and space as you know sir we have many youth here and young adults and even adults that are fascinated by this subject what would be your inspirational words for those out there that would like to replicate maybe being a pilot or possibly an astronaut in today's world okay uh
1: well where shall we start i started uh, was became very interested in aviation uh, when i was just a a small child Uh, my first flight as a matter of fact occurred when I was only four years old, and a barnstormer landed in one of our fields with a World War One airplane, had two cockpits, and uh, he ran out of fuel, and my father helped him go into town and get some fuel for his airplane, and as a reward, I got a tour around the field, and uh, at, at a very young age, that kind of set my mind toward aircraft, and I ended up when I was in high school, uh, going out and washing airplanes at the local airfield in order to earn flight time. So I had my pilot's license by the time I was uh, leaving high school and uh, and just 16 years old, and I had my pilot's license. And that kind of set me up for aviation for the rest of my
0: life. Wow. It's a most memorable story. And again, sir, an honor to have you here on this particular show talking about A long history of serving our nation, but starting off as a pilot, of course, and moving on toward the astronaut corps. I'm interested to learn, sir, you were and have continued to be with the rank of Captain United States Navy. Talk about a little bit about your military service and and why that, of course, was, I think, very important, not only for yourself, but for anyone who serves in today's military. All right. Well, I was
1: graduating from college in 1952, uh, Carnegie Institute of Technology, Carnegie Tech at that time, now called Carnegie Mellon, uh, in 1952, and the Korean War was on, and the draft was on. And the draft in New Mexico, where I lived, uh, in my hometown or my home county, uh, advised me that they were going to draft me. And I said, Well, I prefer not to do that. I want to fly, and I wouldn't do it if I were drafted into the Army. So, to uh, to do it my way. I enlisted in the Navy, went to boot camp, became a seaman, then was an, uh, invited to go to officer school, and I went to officer school in Newport, Rhode Island. Got a commission as an ensign in the Navy, and then went to flight school in Pensacola, and became a, a naval aviator, and went to serve my Korean uh, my tour in the Korean War as a naval aviator. And so it so happened the war ended shortly thereafter, but I had obligated service to the government for my commission and for my uh, uh, flight training. And so it was I was coming back from uh, the, the Pacific aboard an aircraft carrier mm-hmm. right, in 1957 uh, to test pilot duty. I had been selected as a test pilot, uh, coming back to test pilot duty when Sputnik was up on October the 4th, 1957. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of changed my mind a little bit about career. I didn't really plan a military career or an aviation career. I was going into industry. But here was uh, uh, a shift in a a new phase of exploration and development for humankind, and I thought I wanted to be a part of that. So I changed my career path at that point to pursue becoming an astronaut, and so I served uh, a year or so in my test pilot duty, and then was able to go back to school, to advanced technical schools, and get a doctorate degree from MIT in uh, Boston. And following that, I was subsequently, uh, after some more duty with the Air Force and the Navy, I was selected in 1968 into the Apollo program which set me up to go to the moon in 1971.
0: That's an amazing story, and uh, you say it so so simply, but the uh, questions that I have for you, sir, is the astronaut selection program, I'm sure, must be what, highly competitive. They obviously want those that have what, the right stuff, as we all hear, but that includes having the best of grades, but I think there's more to it than the audience maybe is not aware of. You have to go through what? Vigorous physicals, that even if the slightest thing is what? Wrong with you, at least on paper, that would be what? Possibly a disqualifier for being... Well, a...
1: possibly. Uh, yes, we all had... Uh, <clears throat> I'm sure all of us had our little uh, points of uh, concern, but uh, all, we're, all of us were ba- basically in very, very good health. And we had both psychological and physical exams and uh, everything to go through. And like any... Uh, selection process for advanced difficult programs, the competition was very high. I think there were 19,000 candidates for our particular selection, of which uh, 19 of us were selected, so that would mean one out of a 1,000 uh, were selected in on our particular selection to go into the uh, astronaut program.
0: Oh, it's very interesting. And moving fast forward, as you know, of course, sir, living the experience of being on the surface of the moon with, of course, Commander Alan Shepard. Is it fair to say then, in a lighthearted way, that the Navy, Navy veterans, basically were on the surface of the moon? You and also Commander Alan yes. Shepard, I also understand, uh, a Navy veteran, too?
1: Yes, and he was, he was a graduate of Annapolis. He was a, a, uh, <clears throat> a regular Navy. I, I, got, I enlisted, as, of course, as a reserve officer since I w- didn't go to Annapolis. But, uh, yes, we were both Navy, that is true.
0: This is interesting, and I'm just going through the history of the mission, which you know so well, sir. You were designated as the backup lunar module pilot for Apollo 10, and then, of course, flew here as we're talking today as the lunar module pilot on Apollo 14. I got to ask this, and I never had the chance to ask in our short interview that we did with you a few weeks ago, and I appreciate your time then as today. This particular experience, what is it like if you can describe that to our audience? lying on your back in those three couches, you and two other astronauts, of course, getting set to launch on probably what, the most powerful rocket that we've ever developed? What is that feeling like, and what does it feel like upon launch?
1: Well, we had practiced that, and we had simulated this on so many occasions that uh, our comment during launch was, hey, it's a pretty good simulation, isn't it? So um, we were were prepared for about everything that could possibly happen, and... uh, because our main task was to look for problems and see if anything was going wrong so that we could overcome it but yes it was a quite an experience to go through the launch of um a saturn v vehicle which at that point was the uh, biggest most successful uh huge and I say successful because the soviets had a big one too sure but it wasn't didn't not succeed in launching and to getting Uh, a lot of uh, equipment into space.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining us, it's a privilege and honor to have one of America's heroes among many, but one of the 12 astronauts who've walked the surface of the moon, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 14, has been kind enough, and we appreciate his time in spending some time with us today to recollect that particular mission, and of course, the actual experiences we'll get to on the surface of the moon with Commander Alan Shepard. By the way, of course, for the listeners, the first American in space on a suborbital flight starting this whole process of America moving toward the stars. Dr. Mitchell, as as we discuss this particular launch on the Apollo moon rocket, you, uh, in your words, how would you describe separation of the various stages? I understand by some astronauts you do feel it like a kick in the pants, so to speak.
1: Well, yes. The first stage, which was the Uh, one that got us off the surface and into space and was the largest and the fastest acceleration, Uh, we called when that rocket shut off, the first stage of the Saturn V shut off and uh, shipped over to the second stage, we called that the train wreck. Wow. (laughs) Because uh, here you were, you are being accelerated up to uh, a little over 2G, uh, getting speed to very high speed, and all of a sudden that rocket uh, shut down, but during that period the whole that the stack uh, we call it the three stages were three hundred and sixty three feet long. They had been compressed somewhat like an accordion or a spring due to the um acceleration, and so the when it was shut off you were it felt like you were being thrown forward, and then the uncoupling of that uh, three hundred and sixty three rocket, like a spring uncoiling, uh, kind of smacks you in the back with a bum-bum-bum-bum-bum very quick. Wow. And then you got hit again with the second stage coming on. So that to shut off, the little uh, the rocket uncoiling that, and the second page coming on, we termed that experience the train wreck. And after that, it was pretty smooth. We went on into orbit with the second stage and then the third stage. Uh, and got on our way into orbit, and then subsequently uh, launched out of orbit in a translunar, uh, or, into a translunar mm-hmm. orbit over on the other side of the world from Cape Kennedy, where we, where we launched.
0: That is amazing, because just to let the listeners know on the show, even with the great technology of the space shuttle, the International Space Station, Doctor, you know it best. We're still, what, in low Earth orbit, so you, the pioneers of Apollo, were really the only people in the course of history so far that we know of that have left the gravity area, the low-Earth orbit area of the Earth, correct?
1: Right, and going out in, into a uh, greater distance. That is true. <clears throat> and uh, we call that the translunar injection mm-hmm. or the translunar orbit, where we were intersecting the orbit in its movement around the Earth. And um, it took us uh, virtually three days to get there and to intersect the Moon and to go into orbit around that to so we could do our lunar uh, exploration.
0: So, when you launch with the Apollo rockets or any of the rockets like the shuttle, it's fair to say that you're in orbit in maybe somewhat of about 8 to 10 minutes where you're weightless?
1: Generally, a launch phase is somewhere around 10 or 11 minutes mm-hmm. on most of them.
0: That is amazing. And then, as we described the particular mission, uh, I understand there were some difficulties of having Kitty Hawk engage on Taurus, the lunar module, but. That was, of course, successful, as history dictates. But describe a little bit of that difficulty, because I understand repeated attempts to dock went on for over an hour and a
1: half, if that's correct. Right, yes, we had trouble docking, and we're, never, we're still not quite sure why that problem occurred. But more than likely, it was because a little rain shower passed over while we were still on the pad at the Cape, and a little rain shower passed over, and we suspect that perhaps the docking latches got water in them and kind of froze up in the uh, rarefied atmosphere of space. So when we initially tried to dock, uh, it didn't latch, but we tried several times, and finally we got it to latch by firing uh, the uh, final latch, the final locks in place, and it worked. Uh, and it subsequently worked when we came up from the moon. So. Even though we were a little concerned about that, Mm -hmm. uh, it's clear the problem had been solved. And the best guess at this point is that uh, uh, the water uh, from that rain shower caused a freezing of those latches, and they were stiff
0: and didn't actuate like they were supposed to the first time. Dr. Mitchell, the journey to the moon, uh, the translunar injection, the journey to the moon. I imagine you and the other astronauts, the other two on board, are extremely busy, but describe to us in some moments of silence or peace, what is that feeling like? I mean, you're literally just wa- watching the instruments, uh, you're hearing... Well, yes, it's
1: like flying an aircraft or flying any machine or mm-hmm. working any machine that has the instruments, and you have to maintain it and, and uh, monitor its actions and so forth. And... Uh, We had a chance to look at the sky and make sure that our uh, platform, that was monitoring our our motion and our computers, the ground people were keeping them updated so that we knew exactly where we were. And we had a look chance to look at the heavens as we Mm -hmm. went out, and um, uh, then went. rehearsed our checklists and everything for when we got to the moon and what we were going to do when we got there. So it was really just monitoring a pretty well functioning spacecraft for a couple of days during that trip out to the moon.
0: If you would, Dr. Mitchell, describe the descent to the surface of the moon as Ontario separated from Kitty Hawk. I imagine this is probably what? This is all the things that you folks have trained for, especially at your Yes, title. we have
1: trained over and over and over again. Now the main thing that happened on our flight is uh, just under two hours before we were to start to land, (coughs) a a, a warning light came on in the cockpit called the abort light, Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
1: which uh, was an alarm. And we could not go down with that alarm on because if we ignited the engines, uh, it said we should go back into orbit, separate from the descent engine, and go back to rendezvous with the command module. And we certainly didn't want to do that. So we had to, the ground people and ourselves, as we made the last orbit of the moon around to start our descent, before we started our descent, they had to figure out how to get that uh, change, that problem solved, so that we wouldn't have to uh, be worried by that abort light when we ignited the engine. Well, they did, and so 40 minutes later, when we were ready to go down, uh, they had uh, by telemetry had sent us up changes to the computer uh to um, make sure everything worked, and right. so we were able to go ahead and start our descent to the to the moon as programmed and planned
0: let's describe the fra Moro formation. This is probably what some of the roughest terrain on the lunar surface, and also
1: well, not really Oh, really no no uh, we took things step by step mm-hmm. the uh the early flight the early Apollo eleven and twelve. Landed in the Mare area, mm-hmm. uh, in other words, down out in the flat, sure. flat space of the uh, the Moon, and that's what you look at when you look at the about the equator and look at the Moon directly. The the Framaro area is called the Highlands. In other words, just like moving from the uh, the desert up into the next level of plateau, not mountainous yet, mm-hmm. but uh, moving up higher. The flights after us moved went into the more high-level areas, but the Fra Mauro Highlands was just that kind of a up upland plateau, which it had the same features, it had craters, it had lunar dust, which is mostly volcanic, um, and that sort of uh, challenge. But that's what the geologists wanted us, step-by-step, step, to move from the Mari area, which was the, the low desert area, up to the next step of the highlands. And then the later flights moved on up into even more rugged country, in the valleys, higher valleys of the moon.
0: Well, you both make it sound so simple. Uh, landing on the surface of the moon, I'm sure, is no easy task, especially with the simplistic technology, even though for its day was advanced. But describe to us, sir, when you, and astronaut, uh, Alan Shepard, Commander Shepard, got onto the surface of the moon. What was your feeling when you stepped down off the ladder? Describe to us in the more personal side, because
1: well, it was this of is course, It was quite, uh, quite interesting to. Uh, first put put on the moon, and we weren't we weren't really sure until we landed. See, the, the lunar module had very large foot pads on it instead mm-hmm. of wheels. It had big pads on it. Uh, that were a couple of feet across, no a longer maybe three feet across, because we the lunar surface we knew could be very sandy and soft. And the designers in the early days we weren't sure, but what the lunar module would try to sink into that soft sand. Well it didn't happen that way fortunately, but um, so we landed very nicely and into this soft dust and it you did leave footprints when you walked on it up a few inches deep uh, so your footprints, as a matter of fact, are still visible on the moon. Uh, our footprints are still visible as some later uh, Orbital photographs have shown.
0: Absolutely, Doctor. And I want to let people know that the images from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, the team I've interviewed, <coughs> excuse me, the gentleman, Dr. Mark Robinson here yeah. from ASU, I am so impressed with seeing and putting to uh, rest, I think, these crazy claims that we never <laughs> went to the surface of the moon. Yes, you yeah, know. There's the footprints to prove it. There they are. And it's amazing that that little spacecraft can image in such great detail. Out your EVAs on the surface of the moon with about nine and a half hours on EVA. Roughly, yeah. What is, what is this whole experience like? Because you're getting farther and farther away from Ontaris, the lunar module. You have a limited amount of, uh, of uh, oxygen and a little limited amount, I'm sure, of energy to go out, but you did make it to Cone Crater, as we know.
1: Yeah. Well, I, our first EVA, uh, the first four and a half hour EVA, uh, that was supposed to have a limit of five hours. EVA was to set extravehicular, period, was to set up a science station out in front of the lunar module, Mm -hmm. which we did, and which beamed back data by telemetry uh, that we set, the the stations that we set up, for the next 14 years before it was shut down. And as a matter of fact, the uh, uh, laser reflector that we put up there is still measuring, uh, getting laser reflections from Earth uh... that measure the precisely the distance of the moon from earth at that point
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, on our second EVA, yes that was the trek up to cone crater uh... which was two and a half kilometers away from us and we wanted to get up there and and the geologists wanted us to collect samples all the way to the top of cone crater and bring them back which we did about ninety five pounds of samples dirt and rock Sure. and take pictures of all sorts and uh, we did that <coughs> And we got almost we, well. We got to the top. We didn't really realize we were right on the edge of the crater until after we came back, and they took our photographs and showed that we were virtually right on the edge. Except we couldn't see it because of the duning. See, That was the problem on the uh, on the surface of the moon. That the craters, kind of like sand dunes in our in our deserts, one crater and uh, uh, lump the edge of one crater like a sand dune, looks about like every right. other sand dune, and so you don't quite know what's on the other side. And here we were at the top of Cone Crater, wanting to look, get a look into it. We were collecting data mm-hmm. and wanting to get a, like peeking into the uh, into Grand Canyon uh, and being right at the edge of it, but not getting a chance to deep look into it. Well, that was our predicament. We gathered our data, we collected all of our samples, and we wanted to take a look into Cone Crater, uh, which was, turns out but just 30 feet over the next dune. Um, But they said, no, you're out of water and oxygen. You better come back now. So that's what we did.
0: And you really don't want to come back, I imagine. We really didn't
1: want to come back. (laughs) We wanted to take a look, but we just didn't get the chance. They were convinced us we were really out of water and and time and and, uh, oxygen.
0: You know, I've always had, ladies and gentlemen, a fondness for the astronauts and the program, both men and women. Today, if you're just joining us, a real honor, an American hero, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, one of the 12 human beings who've walked on the surface of the moon. is joining us here in an exclusive interview here on the Dr. Sky Show. He, along with Commander Alan Shepard, walked on the surface of the moon as Dr. Edgar Mitchell was the lunar module pilot of the famous Apollo 14 mission to the moon as we're discussing this. And Dr. Mitchell, some of the questions that I have here, this has always been, and I wrote down a couple that I've always been fascinated about, and here they are. Is it true that all of the Apollo landings happened when there was a low sun angle, and if that is true, could you have done the same type of landing when the sun was high, thus when we see a full moon, or is the temperature too high for doing a landing at that time?
1: Well, the point is, we did land in the early lunar morning, Mm -hmm. when the sun was low in the lunar sky, Uh, for a couple of reasons. allowed us to have, since we always landed from the east to the west, mm-hmm. uh, it allowed us to have a long shadow on the lunar module so we could see see uh, ourselves approaching uh, the the surface better and be able to get, uh, gauge distance better. So that that was the purpose of landing with a low sun angle and from the east, so we'd have a good shadow. And it's also the fact that before the sun got too high, we always wanted to be off the uh, off the surface before lunar noon because if the sun was that high in the lunar sky it would be terribly terribly hot and even though the later missions after us had more uh significant equipment and better equipment to withstand the heat and stay out in it longer uh nevertheless everybody wanted to get out of there before the sun got too high in the sky.
0: And my last question about the specifics on the surface of the moon, Doctor, is I've always heard this from others and never had it corroborated or confirmed, but if you look up toward the Earth from the lunar surface, the Earth appears to be, what, about four times the diameter of what we see our moon in our Earth sky?
1: Well, it it is bigger because uh, it's a bigger planet. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, For our mission, it was directly overhead, and for most of the missions that landed, we we were not seeing a full Earth. We were only seeing, uh, like, the moon when it's in one of its phases. Interesting. Because in order to get get the moon so that the sun angle when we landed was correct for us, the Earth it was not in a position to give us a full Earth. The pictures we have of full Earth were made, uh, actually, uh, from Apollos 8 and 10, uh, because they had, a, they had quite a different Earth-Sun uh, configuration when they made their mission. And some of the great photos of Earth come from those missions. On our particular missions, the sun angle and the, the Earth did not look like the big, gorgeous Earth that we see on sure. um, some of them. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe
0: costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing
1: it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at Evernorth.com/slash wonder.
0: Oh, it's fascinating, Doctor. And in the few minutes that we have with you about ten, I do appreciate your answers on, on as we shift gears. You're probably one of the most unique astronauts in the sense that you have some very strong views, and and I really, really salute you for this, sir. That as far as the concept of life in the universe, I'd like to not put words in your mouth, but uh, I think you're what? Generally more positive that within, say, 100 or 200 billion stars in our galaxy, that we may not necessarily be alone.
1: Well, I think the evidence is building up uh, very strongly in that regard, in that direction, particularly as the telescopes, the Hubble telescope, and the various. Uh, observational instruments that we have available these days uh, have been looking at galaxies and and star systems for now uh, in new ways for for the last twenty some years or so some even longer and it 's becoming quite obvious that the universe is much more uh, large with many many more galaxies, galactic clusters, star systems, and planets than we ever thought before and uh, we can see things uh, that were just not possible uh, 50 years ago. And so it's, and there's no doubt in my mind that we're not alone in the universe. And furthermore, so any, to,
0: any for, thoughts, though, on the Roswell situation? Well, I, I mean, I've what covered I was, that what? as a speaker but, there, as a, a man of just talking to people about the possibility of life, but I, I'd rather hear your answer to that.
1: Well, I'm just going to go into that. Yes, sir. Yes, I grew up in the Roswell area and became interested since then, since and um, the Roswell area is where one of the, at least modern, incidents took place of alien visitation. And I, even though at that time I was still just a senior in high school and was going off to college, I wasn't really interested in that. But i became become interested in later years, And uh, I've done a lot of research. I'm well known in the area. I've done a lot of, I know virtually all of the Western investigators in the UFO area and the alien technology areas. And uh, I have no doubt in my mind we're not alone. We have been visited uh, by several species and several civilizations. And it will go on, and it's becoming, the evidence is becoming strong that they've been visiting us here for a very, very long
0: time. Well, sir, I'm interested in hearing this, and I, our listeners are too. To me, I think that's very amazing that uh, a man who has all the scientific experience and a journey to the moon behind him, plus a lot of other military service, you firmly believe that that is a, an option on the table, and I, I appreciate hearing that because I think there's many out there that also would agree with you, sir.
1: Well, and a lot of people out there who do agree with me. Yep, uh, I don't consider myself an original investigator in this area, but I have been briefed and I have been with. Uh, many of the very, very good investigators from both Europe and and the United States that have spent uh, several decades here working on these issues.
0: As you know, sir, back in 1973, you founded the nonprofit Institute of Noetic Sciences and also the author of a phenomenal book that I'm going to recommend individuals read entitled The Way of the Explorer and Apollo Astronaut's Journey through Through the Material and Mystical Worlds. You can learn more about our special guest, Dr. Edgar Mitchell of Apollo 14 fame, one of the 12 humans who's walked on the surface of the moon, by visiting his websites at www.noetic.org, and for his personal website, www.edmitchellapollo14.com. And in closing, sir, I just wanted to see if you could just take us down
1: this path.
0: We now have, in my opinion, I'm going to sound political here, but why not? Get your experience and and answer It's a, it's a shame, in my opinion, that we do not seem to have a concrete, serious space program after the next two launches of the shuttle, as you know. There seems to be this large gap in there for manned exploration, and I'm hoping, uh, and I'd like you to answer, sir, what, what is the hope for manned exploration beyond the shuttle launches?
1: Oh, I think it will continue. We, we must go into space, uh, just as the, our visitors have come here. I point out, even though it does isn't going to happen soon, I don't believe, Our sun is going to burn out. We must become a universal species and be off of this planet and out of the solar system in the distant future. So our our long-term history is as celestial creatures out in the universe, Uh, but that's not right away. But in the meantime, we can start most any time. We still can't go to Mars with manned missions. We've been there with unmanned missions, and we don't have the technologies yet available to do that. So it will continue. We we are going through a period right now of economic problems. We had virtually a world economic collapse a three sure. years ago, and we're having to come back out of that. But I don't have any doubt, but what in due course, uh, and I often say, we will go to Mars in due course. But when we go to Mars and look back at this tiny, tiny little planet we call Earth, and <clears throat> It would sound sound kind of silly to say I came from the United States or Canada or England or Germany or Israel or so forth. No, we came from Earth. And we're not quite ready to do that until we quit uh, spending our time and our money and our efforts killing each other over whose God, the best God, Mm -hmm. and border disputes and such, and learn to operate cooperatively. Cooperatively, Mm -hmm. We're not about to survive, so we've got to get past that one.
0: And finally, Dr. Mitchell, what keeps Dr. Edgar Mitchell busy these days? I'm sure you have a full plate and describe some of the activities that you're involved with.
1: Well, I'm involved in uh, a great deal of frontier research on precisely the issues we're talking about. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we get the sustainable energy that's represented in the so-called zero-point energy or vacuum energy that from which all of our matter is created? Uh, that's an unfailing energy source, except we don't know how to tap it and we don't know how to use it for space exploration or for any other type of uh, energy sources. But we've got to do that, and um, those are the types of frontier issues that I spend my time on.
0: Well, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, I really want to thank you so much. An American hero, one of the 12 who've walked the surface of the moon and can actually talk about it and prove it, as we've done today, taking a journey beyond the Earth to the moon, and hopefully with all of us listening and being positive, moving out to the stars and beyond, I want to thank Dr. Edgar Mitchell, our very special guest. He himself, along with his commander, Alan Shepard, he, of course, the lunar module pilot on this particular mission with command module pilot Stuart Rusa, made Apollo 14 happen. It goes into the history books. And I want to remind everyone, if you're down at the Kennedy Space Center, I'm sure you would agree, Dr. Mitchell, the most beautiful exhibit lying on its side is this beautiful replica, actually a rocket, it seems like it's ready to go, of what? The Apollo Saturn V. That's correct. Thank you so much, Dr. Edgar Mitchell of Apollo 14, one of the great moonwalkers and an American hero. We thank you so much, sir. If you'd stay on the line with us as we go to the bottom of the hour break. That concludes this exciting edition of the Dr. Sky Show, heard exclusively on teentalknetwork.com and on many radio stations around the nation. And in particular, hello to our flagship radio station, KFNX, News Talk Radio 1100 in Phoenix, and to all the affiliates around the nation. We thank you. And Dr. Sky always closes and reminds each and every one, and I'm sure Dr. Mitchell would agree, always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. Thank you, Dr. Edgar Mitchell.